Hi, welcome back to NGB Ideas, where we discuss the personal journey of leaders, innovators, and disruptors in the Canadian life sciences community. I'm your host, Jim Wilson, and today we're joined by Dr. Lisa Porter from the University of Windsor, who shares her perspective on the growing life sciences sector in Windsor-Essex. As Dr. Porter points out, if you're part of Canada's life sciences sector and you do not have Windsor on your radar, you should. This podcast is brought to you by OmniaBio.com, and it's in support of Next Great Big Ideas, Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit, that's taking place at the Hamilton Convention Centre on the first Monday in October, that's October 2nd. For details, please go to nextgreatbigideas.com. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to the NGB Ideas podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me, Jim. I want to start off by saying a number of our guests on the podcast have been from Northern Ontario. In fact, our interview last week was with Glenn McCarthy from LabWorks, who was born in Thunder Bay, and one of our first guests, Ian McDermott at UHN, spent his early years in Sault Ste. Marie before moving to my hometown of North Bay. And I understand the Sioux is your hometown as well. It sure is, yeah. I'm a Sioux girl. There must be something in the water in Northern Ontario. Before we jump in, I'd like to let our listeners know a bit about your professional accomplishments, which are many. You have a PhD in cell and molecular biology from McMaster University, which we'll touch on shortly. You were a postdoctoral fellow at the University of California at San Diego. You're a distinguished professor at the University of Windsor, the executive director of the WeSpark Health Institute in Windsor, and a delegate of the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. You're also a frequent reviewer and scientific officer for CIHR, the Canadian Institute for Health Research, and NSERC, the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council of Canada. And lastly, and to my delight, you two grew up in Northern Ontario. So let's start there. You're from Sault Ste. Marie. I understand your mom stayed at home to raise the family and your father worked in the steel mills. I hope they're still with us. Well, my mom's not, but my dad is. I'm sorry. My dad's actually here in Windsor. Oh, great. Where were they originally from? They were born and raised in the Sioux. Could you tell us a bit about them? Do you know how they met? They got married very young and had me when they were was 19 years old. I think they're both super intelligent people and just as consequence of having a family young, my dad went to work and my dad went to college briefly, but neither continued their education, but they really wanted us to go to school and just enforced in us that going to school and keeping up your education was super important. And I think they had a huge, huge part in sort of my overall career goals, my love of the school, and even research. My dad is like an experimenter and had many discoveries that he didn't patent, including the pen Oh, really? Yeah. So I think they taught me about research and digging in and learning things. So they started my interest in research. And you come by it honestly. Why? Where in the city did you live? Were you in the suburbs like I was in North Bay where you could walk up the street and walk into the woods or were you in the shadow of the steel mill down on the river? Yeah, no, I was up by the airport, pretty far north. My high school was Cork Collegiate, so shout out to all the Colts people out there. <laughs> what was it like growing up in the Sioux? I loved the Sioux and I still love the Sioux. I think like many Northern Ontario people, once you're a part of that kind of community, it really becomes part of you. And I think even for me... I lived in Montreal for a stint in Toronto and in Hamilton, et cetera. But always small town is my passion. And that's why now I live out in Aresburg, which is a small town. And I think that that started, you know, back in the Sioux where 
You really become close to the people around you. You rely on the community, and you really appreciate that. You have two younger siblings. Can you tell us a bit about them? So my brother, Robert, he's in Hamilton and works for, I don't exactly know what he does, but a kind of an electronic. And my sister, actually, I'm really proud of her. She was in advertising and radio sales and then recently made a career switch to working in long-term care. So late in life, doing this career switch. Good for her. If you don't mind my asking, what was your mother like? Oh my gosh, it made me cry. Family was always important, embedded traditions into all of us and held down the family. And I think that sometimes when you think about your background and your family roots, it's those people that just are willing to do anything and everything to bring their family together, to protect them. Those people are the ones that just make you who you are. To me, she was the foundation of my family. Sounds like my mom as well. Your dad worked in the mill. What did he do there? He was, oh gosh, I don't know his exact title. I think he did a little bit of everything, fixing machines and electronics. You mentioned high school earlier, the years you spent in high school. What was that like? Were you a good student? Academically, I always did well. I loved school always since the beginning. Um, I liked all subjects. I think maybe I was a bit of a chatter and a social butterfly, so I think I might have gotten a little bit of trouble through high school. For me, high school was amazing because I, I really loved the social environment, had great friends, still remain in contact with many of them. Were you a gym rat or did you spend your time behind the school or in the library or? A little bit of everything. I don't know if my students listen to this, but I was a cheerleader. So I wasn't very sports inclined, but I did love rallying the troops and maybe I'm a, still a little bit of a cheerleader in my lab. Really enjoyed my time in high school a lot. Over COVID, when I saw students having to learn from home, I think that robbed them of so much of the environment high schools offer. Yeah, yeah I agree with that. Did you have any summer jobs growing up? Oh, gosh, I had so many jobs. I grew up on a farm with horses. I shoveled stalls from when I was young. And then I worked at Swiss Chalet. I made some great friends at Swiss Chalet there down by the mall. Waitressed at bars. And then I did a little stint in the summers at the Bug Lab. And I got that through a scholarship. That was part of my starting in science, really learning from the people at the Bug Lab downtown. What was the Bug Lab? So the Bug Lab supports the forestry industry, and they look at the species of bugs that are affecting our trees. We did this stint where we did spruce budworm mapping, you know, when the spruce budworm were taken down our forests. I got to go up in the plain and sort of look at where the damage was and map it out. Kind of a little uh, stint into ecology and learning about bugs and insects. Well, that must have been a really cool summer job. It was. Now, you had some great teachers, both in grade school and in high school, and I'd appreciate you discussing two in particular, your biology teacher and your physics teacher. Could you tell us a bit about them? Mr. Piccolo was my physics teacher in particular, Mr. Bailey, and I remember Miss Arcangeletti was my grade four teacher. Miss Arcangeletti really supported me in public speaking. Do you remember when we had to do orals? I don't know if they have to even have to do orals now. She supported me to tell some silly little story that I told and write it down and gave me sort of a, a piece on public speaking. And I went all the way to the regionals, I think, that year because of her. Still am a little bit of a nervous speaker, but she really gave me a lot of confidence, just allowed me to get up there and act silly and tell my story. And I carried that through. So I, I loved public speaking and doing those little writing assignments. She taught me a little bit about English. So I love that piece and that started back from her. And then Mr. Bailey and Mr. Piccolo, in science, we don't do enough storytelling. They really told about biology and physics from an entertaining 
peace. They always made it fun to be in the class. And, you know, I think, well, I love the science. I think that's the piece that got me. And I credit them for me going into science in university. I think if it would have been really dryly presented, even if I liked the subject, I don't think I would have done it. I think the power of our teachers and how they present a subject really is how creative they can be and, and how they can grab your interest. I think that can't be undersold. They really piqued my interest and that's really what forced me to say, okay, I'm just going to go into some kind of science. I went into natural sciences generally because I didn't know which one, but I remember them for how interesting and exciting they made it. I've always thought that sales and teaching are different sides of the same coin because a teacher had to be a good salesperson because they've got a 20, 30 kids in front of them that really aren't interested in buying into what they've got to offer. If they can sell it properly, then they got them. And I think the best salespeople are educators because... If you really have to put a hard sell on someone, it's probably a better fit for the salesperson than it is for the person they're selling to. And I think interest, you know, like I'm someone who I'm a little bit like just everything catches my interest, but I can't focus on things very often. Definitely, I'm somebody who doesn't hold my focus very easily. And I think if it was not for their skills in just grabbing my interest, I'm sure that I would have went more for arts and things like this because they tend to be better at catching your attention. Oh, that's great. When you were growing up, Algoma College was in the Sioux, but there was no university. And Algoma College is now a university. It got its charter in 2009, and it's an up-and-coming school. But when you were growing up, and you were obviously interested in life sciences, there really wasn't anything local to go to. So you went to McMaster University in Hamilton. Why did you choose Mac? Yeah, I mean, again, this goes to like how even schools portray themselves. I knew nothing really of, of all the different schools. And like many students up north, I think you just read the brochures and whatnot. My dad actually took me and a group of my friends on a little tour on March break, and we went to the different schools. I was the only one out of my friends, so I went by myself to Mac. Most of my friends went to either Waterloo or Guelph. I loved the way that they described their life sciences program. Generally, I didn't know if I wanted to go more to the life sciences or into medicine and health. Like I had an interest in both. And I saw them as, you know, a really strong medical school, et cetera. So I just threw my bets into that pot and went for it. Good for you. If you don't mind my ask, you started at Mac in what, 92? 88, actually. In your second year, there was a new program launched called Biopharmacology, which you signed up for. And I'm wondering what got your attention? Why did it interest you? Yeah, it was like lots of things when they pitch it as an elite program. It's only going to let in a few students. They were only taking 23 students in second year. I think what I liked about it was that they were going to offer the opportunity to be involved in different experiences. So it was co-op. I was working my way through school. So I was waitressing and working in local bars and stuff. So this was an opportunity for me to get involved in some sort of science work experience as well. So I applied. It was problem-based learning. So small group problem-based learning, which again, I think was great for my personality that it was more hands-on learning, small group settings. You mentioned that you worked through school. I, I understand you had a few scholarships, but you were working in bars and waitressing and whatnot. And you met your husband, Don, in one of the bars you worked in. Was he a customer or was he a fellow worker? He was a customer. I met lots of great friends at the bars that I worked at, Danbury Hamilton, that really helped to shape my university time and career there. 
Can you remember what it was like being in that first cohort in the biopharmacology program? It still exists, this program. I don't know how big it is now. I think it's still small. It was great. Stick with that same class for three years. Really in a small group, problem-based setting. At the time, I actually didn't know that I loved research. I didn't think anything about research like many students. And in fact, I think if you would have asked me if I liked research for what I knew about it, I would have said definitely not. I thought I wanted to go into professional school. I thought I wanted pharmacy. This program allowed you to kind of sample out those different job settings, including pharmacy. And one of the settings I got to try out was research, and I just fell in love with it. You completed your undergrad in 1996 and decided to take a year off to work in the pharma industry. Where did you work? I worked at Lelix Biopharmaceuticals in Mississauga. And what was that experience like? It was great. It was an eye-opener. I liked it and that they gave me sort of a project that was mine I had to work on. But one of the things, like many things when you go into industry, it's that it's very routed in a project that has to make a product that's going to make money. So I started our project. They asked me to set up a bunch of assays to test this drug, and I set up a bunch of them. I think what they really wanted was a cardiovascular endpoint. And it turned out that this drug product was not good in any of the cardiovascular models that I set up, but it was really good for malaria. And I thought the biology was very cool, but it wasn't something that the pharma company really had the bandwidth to support. So they said, no, we can sorry, we have to move you to another project because we're finding a drug for cardiovascular and we're moving on. But the science in me said, this was cool biology and I just wanted to explore it and I wanted to stick with it. So then I decided, well, maybe I'm not meant to actually make money and I should just stick with science. <laughs> so I decided to do grad school and, and just follow the science because that's what I was interested in. You hit that intersection between research and business. There was that self-realization that, eh, you know, they're not always aligned. So you took a step back and went, well, I'm going to go do a PhD and prove you wrong on this aspect. Malaria has made full circle, right? Now there's lots of drug discovery after malaria. They should have stuck with it. So you started your PhD in 1996, did your grad work under Jonathan Lee, who I understand helped you with the basic molecular underpinnings of cell growth and division. And I'm going to pause for a second here because regular listeners of our podcast know there's a point in every one of the interviews where I ask a guest to explain what something means to our audience. But what I'm really asking is them to explain to me, because I have the faintest idea what that means. I'd appreciate you going from a 30,000-foot overview. What does basic molecular underpinnings of cell growth and division mean? This is understanding how the genes in our cells and the proteins work together to regulate how a cell goes from one cell to dividing into two and how it can change throughout life including when you hit it with different kinds of stressors or it faces different environments. And we know that that's important for everything, right? It's important for how we form as people, so your normal development. It's also important for the field of regenerative medicine, so how your body is constantly turning over and responding to all sorts of different forces. It's also how our body ages. The demise of that is the biology of aging. And then that ultimately underlies many different disease states, including cancer. So understanding what goes wrong in those processes is ultimately what underlies cancer. 
you know, I started out just focusing in on this really simple question that literally tens of thousands of scientists around the world focus on. And each one of us take our own little niche and interest and then figure out how your set of questions is involved in those disease states. That's where I started. Jonathan, I was his first PhD student and it was really great because I got to work hand in hand with him. He taught me everything that I learned on the bench to start my career. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. You finished your PhD in 2001 and other than an uncle who went to the University of Toronto, you were one of the first of your generation in your family to attend university. And you mentioned earlier an influence from your parents, but where did the ambition come from? Like a suggestion sounds like it came from your parents, but what drove you down this path? For my parents, they just didn't have the opportunity to go away to school and they really supported us. Uh, they worked their butts off to be able to pay to help support us. Um, I got a lot of support from my Aunt Pat and my whole family. I think that ultimately my family and, and for my cousins as well, I know they also got the same kind of support where it was just like, you know what, the sky's the limit and you just go learn everything that you're interested in and a career will come out of it. They told us to sort of put our nose ahead and, and just kind of follow your heart and your senses and something will come out of it. Now we've put a lot of focus on, on people planning their career from a little kid and you don't know, like you just don't know what you're going to fall into. And I think that's what you do at school. We're at an area right now where people are putting universities as saying, you know, these are a pie in the sky thing where they're not needed. To me, it's it's just crazy because this is where we're promoting higher education, but also students explore and learn about themselves. I always say now to all my students when they start out, up until the time when you go to university, you've been focusing on what you're bad at pretty much. You have to put a lot of focus on improving your weaknesses. But at university, nobody ever succeeds at doing what you're bad at. So it's about figuring out what you're good at and putting all of your energy in that. And you have the opportunity to do that. And I think that that's just so important. I'm really grateful that my family just took that approach, just said, do it, go away, learn everything you can learn, and something good will come up. So you might have been a cheerleader in high school, but it sounds like you had a whole bunch of cheerleaders at home. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You spent a lot of time at McMaster. What do you recall about your time there? Well, I mean, it was a lot of hard work, but I think like most of us, when we look back on things, you don't remember all that, right? You remember the good things. So I remember, you know, all of the, the fun times and the, the friends, but also the learning experiences and being able to test out different environments. I think for me, that was just a life changer, being able to immerse myself in different worlds and take the bits of it away that would tell me about sort of, you know, where I wanted to go with my career. Your career took you away from Hamilton. You and your husband, Don, went to the U.S. and you became a postdoctoral fellow at the University of California at San Diego. Was that a difficult move for either of you? Maybe it was a little difficult for my husband, who was born and raised in Hamilton. We lived next door to his mom. I think maybe tough for him to leave his family and friends. But I think it was, for both of us, a great experience. San Diego is just such a powerhouse of science. I'm really surrounded by Nobel laureates being able to go to, to these great talks. And then, of course, it's San Diego. So, you know, we lived right off of the beach. My two kids were born there, so they're American. We had great weather. I think my husband wore shorts for three years straight. It was a great experience, I think, for both of us. You know, you've got to do these kinds of experiences where it puts you out of your comfort zone, really teaches you to grow and meet great people. Growth starts at the edge of your comfort zone. 
In San Diego, you worked under Dr. Dan Donahue, and you were part of a team that characterized the human speedy protein. Could you share with us a bit about that research? Yeah. So when I arrived in San Diego, Dan and his team had already done a great deal of work on Speedy. Yeah. So I was really lucky to be able to join a talented group of scientists already making momentum on this area. These are proteins. So people who aren't cell molecular biologists out there, you think of protein in meat and and uh, things to make muscle, but proteins are, are the workhorses of your cells. They make them look and, and function as they should do. So this was the era before we knew everything about our genome. So individually characterizing these things took a lot of time. Really, we just pounded away at learning about this one little family of proteins and what they did. We know now that they're important in germ cell maturation. So that means how uh, sperms and eggs mature. Actually, one area for this is potentially as a male contraceptive. And then it's normally involved in early development. So, you know, when we're all developing as fetuses, but like many things in regenerative medicine and cancer, these proteins become elevated again. So they start to be expressed again in cancers. And that's beautiful for two reasons. One, it tells us what cancers are doing wrong because they're expressing things that you should only be expressing when you're developing early on. But also it's something that we could target because a mature organism doesn't need it. And so that could potentially be a drug target. So it's an exciting family of proteins for many reasons. And that started my career, my lab now primarily, that's sort of the bread and butter of, of what we look at. So I started looking at it there in San Diego and really grateful to Dan and the whole team there for all the work they put in on it. It's a real treat to watch you light up as you describe that part of your life. That was really cool. Dr. Donahue gave you some advice that you've carried with you since then, and I'd appreciate you sharing the advice that he gave you. Yeah, Dan was an amazing man to work for. I don't know if he's still the provost of San Diego now, but really, besides being a brilliant scientist, he really spent the time to mentor each of the people in his lab. And when I was applying for jobs, initially, I put out my applications and I thought, I'm just going to go to the schools that had these powerhouse, gigantic cell molecular health research infrastructure already set up. I applied to U of T and Ottawa and uh, McMaster and got interviews in several. And Windsor had a job ad out there and I wasn't going to apply. And Dan told me never to close the door on an opportunity. And you would think that I would have already learned that from even just being in research at that point, because had I not sampled it, I wouldn't be there. But clearly I needed lessons to be told to me multiple times. I then applied because he told me just just apply and go and see what they have to offer. And I did it and I'm really so grateful that I got to go there and meet the people that were starting to shape what is now the health infrastructure here in Windsor and really the opportunity. I would have never had the lab and the career that I have now. I tell everybody now, just don't close doors on yourself. You just got to take these opportunities to test things out. To paraphrase, be open-minded. Don't close doors. Try new things because you just never know. That is great advice. While you were in San Diego, you were very busy. On top of your research, you also had your two sons, Jaden and Tyson. And that time of your life must have tested you on a whole bunch of different levels. And looking back, how difficult was it to find a work-life balance 
for me, and some people might not like my answer here. To me, I, I don't think there is such a thing as a work-life balance, to be honest. You know, it's like we can't create energy where it doesn't exist. And so whatever you are going to take away or put into something, you're taking away from something else always. And I think that that's what we have to realize is that, you know, if you're pouring time into one thing, it's, it's definitely coming at the expense of something else. I think that for me, I'm really blessed to have a husband who goes above and beyond uh, to support my career and to take up a lot of slack, you know, that that I leave in supporting my family, to be honest with you. And my kids too, you know, they are super understanding of having a mom who's a prof and very busy academic. And, you know, I think I've embedded them in academics since day one. And so they both decided not to become academics, <laughs> I think, because I, I toted them around and had them in, in my uh, office in a playpen while I wrote grants and worked at the bench. It is a, a sacrifice. No matter what people say, I don't think you can have it all. I think if you want to be dedicated 100% to being a stay-at-home parent, then it comes at the expense of your career, just like my mom. I think that that's something that I've come to the realization of. I don't think it's possible to have it all. I think you'd be kidding yourself if you think that you're not going to be sacrificing. I think we have to surround ourselves by the people. And again, this comes to recognizing that it takes all the people around you on both ends. For the time I spend with my family, I've got the people at my work support me there. And uh, we all do that to each other. I think if we want to say the work-life balance is really, we need an entire team of people around us, rely on other people to make it happen. That's what it really is saying. Life and success are team sports. I'd like to go down this path a little bit further, if we may. And you know, forgive me for saying, as a you know, very privileged white male, I think women in particular have to make more sacrifices, far more sacrifices than men. And I don't know if it's something that's getting better. I hope it is, but there is no perfect time to have a family. There's no perfect time to do anything. If, you know, if you're waiting for the perfect time, you never do anything. From my perspective, I've always thought, and again, forgive me for saying it, but gosh, it's a lot easier being a man. I mean, I think historically that is, is true, right? And I think we're still fighting against these historical norms where the mom raising the family, you know, the, the pressure to be uh, the perfect mom is out there. But I think now it is shifting and there's a pressure on men now as well to be there supporting their families. And I think a recognition of uh, the role that men play in, in supporting the success of their partners and raising the family. Certainly, I'm blessed to have a husband who does that 24-7. Like, he's fabulous. And not all women have that. It goes without saying that many people come from so much privilege. Just thinking back along the whole journey, you know, I'm telling you about my family, et cetera, and all of that screams privilege, privilege all along the way because having those kinds of supports in our life are a privilege and so many people don't have them. And I think we do have to think about, you know, what do we do to better support those people who just don't have the same kind of privilege? And certainly I don't have the answers, but I, I think people coming together to really think this out because there are so many Nobel laureates out there who just don't have the support that many of us have relied on our whole lives to get to where we are. How do we better support those people? And I think realizing that it takes this kind of support to get to where we want to be, that's the start. And then we realize that the people that didn't get to these same kind of careers, much of it is because they didn't have that support. And so let's think backwards and, and try to rectify some of that. 
We hope you're enjoying today's show and want to remind you this podcast is part of Next Great Big Ideas, Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit, and brought to you by LabOccupier.com. The summit is in support of McMaster Children's Hospital, and it's sponsored by OmniBio and supported by the TMX Group. For details on the event, please go to nextgreatbigideas.com. So you were in San Diego for about three and a half years, and I assume you loved living on the coast so much that you decided Windsor would be a good place to go to. You mentioned applying to Windsor kind of as an afterthought, but applying and accepting are two different things. What made you accept the position at Windsor? That's also an interesting tale. I think in retrospect, Windsor is the southernmost point of Canada and a beautiful place to live. So I can tell you all about Windsor. Actually, I had two competing job offers and one was up in Ottawa and the other was here in Windsor. Windsor did everything to support me coming here. I just had my second son and he was actually in the neonatal unit because he was born premature. Uh, Everything's good now. But at the time, I didn't know the way it was going to go. The people recruiting and supporting this position really went above and beyond to support me coming here. It was funny because I remember the dean at the time, Dr. Rick Karen, and all the staff here in Windsor working on my job ad. Adela Felker, if you're listening to this, you know, these, these are the people that are working on your job and like the package that they're putting together. But this was a very personal, they reached out, they said, okay, we know you need a pediatrician. They set me up with a pediatrician. They set me up with all of these things that like, this is above and beyond, you know, a house, a place to live. It just so that I didn't have to think about those small things while I had was bringing this three-week-old baby out of the neonatal unit. My husband said, Lisa, this is a done deal. Like, we are not thinking any further. These people are a supportive environment. You're going to Windsor. And so, and maybe it wasn't as clear cut of that, but that's what I heard. And we didn't look back. You know, those kinds of supports to people from a business sector, when you're recruiting somebody, it truly matters, right? Those small things. And it shows the kind of environment that you're coming into. So that's why I came to Windsor initially, actually, was strictly because of the way they supported me. The difference between wanting someone to do a job and wanting someone to build a career. Yeah, exactly. You've been in Windsor now since 2004, almost 20 years, and you've worked your way up from assistant professor to, well, you were recently appointed distinguished professor. And I also want our listeners to know you are the first woman in the science faculty at the University of Windsor to be appointed to distinguished professor. Congratulations. For the non-academics amongst us, how is this position different from being a professor? You go through the promotion tenure process all the way to full professor. And then at distinguished professor level, they send out your application to a variety of academics internationally. And you basically have to show that on an international level, um, you sort of achieved a status with regards to research and teaching and community support as well. That's wonderful recognition. You mentioned earlier you could talk a lot about the city of Windsor. I'm going to give you an opportunity to. So many of our listeners may not be familiar with Windsor or the university. So let's start with the city. Can you put an economic development officer's hat on for us? And you know why should companies put Windsor on their radar? I would go as far as to say that I think Windsor is one of the hidden gems in Canada. And that truly, from a business standpoint, I think that it is underutilized and underappreciated and an area that definitely a smart investor would look very carefully here. 
So obviously we sit at the U.S. border, and this is the busiest border in North America. Our border represents a quarter of all U.S.-Canada trade, and so we're a hotspot. I think you saw recently in the protests when they shut down capital of Canada for, what, three weeks? And they shut down Windsor for five days, and the whole government said this cannot be shut down because our economy is dependent on Windsor. We also are like an eggy food sector, just a wealth of eggy food business here. And from the health sector perspective, amazing untapped potential. Sitting right across 15 minutes away, all of the U.S. hospitals and the market that sits across in the U.S., and then the investment that recently has come to Windsor, over $2 billion investment of the province in building up the healthcare system here in Windsor, and the research that's just growing here. I think, honestly, it's our time in Windsor, and you're going to see a lot of growth in our area. We also have interesting demographics, such important population demographics, over 100 cultures represented in the Windsor-Essex region. I don't know if you know, but we are one of the landing spots for the Underground Railroad back in the days. I did know that. History degree, Canadian history. Proud place in history and also advanced manufacturing because of the auto sector, but a lot of opportunity to kind of pivot on the expertise in advanced manufacturing here in Windsor-Essex and use it for a variety of different regions. And also, you know, I think the dependency on auto here, while I still think our auto industry here is doing a lot of amazing things and with the battery plants coming here, you know, lots of opportunities there, but I think that like many, uh, and this goes to the Sault Ste. Marie as well, you know, you're always looking to diversify the economy. And so I think it's, it's important for our region to diversify. So many reasons. You're missing out if you've got a business and you've not looked in this region. And that's a great segue into talking about the university. Could you tell us about the University of Windsor? The University of Windsor that is right now, as compared to when it came here 20 years ago, the people that they've recruited, the momentum that they have going on, I think is absolutely amazing. Just the growth it goes to the leadership at the university. They've got great visionary leaders that are really growing the Windsor University and embedding it into everything that's happening, the exciting things that are happening in our city. I think that just across engineering, health, the border, and the expertise that we have in sort of border and supply chains and in the environment, in agriculture, in Great Lakes. I think we've got a lot of tradition that we've built on, but it's growing at leaps and bounds. I can honestly say that the students and the people here in Windsor are just amazing people. Like they rally around the university. They support growth in this region. They're Windsor proud. It reminds me a lot of the North. I think, again, this is a, nor a Northern thing, but maybe it's auto. They're a tough, resilient population that's willing to just go all out behind growth in this region. I think people always underestimate the people here, but the people I've met, the philanthropy, the support, the giving, it's actually mind-blowing. It's an amazing place to come. Sounds like a, a greater sense of community, which you find in smaller places and is sorely lacking in larger cities, and I'm not going to go any further with that because I live in the GTA. Listening to you, it strikes me that Windsor and, and Sault Ste. Marie are similar, and I mean that respectfully because many of our listeners might consider both cities to be out of the way. Am I off base in saying that? We're geographically isolated, right? We're at this small, but I think also another uh, selling point is that our climate, right? So because we're at this little tip part 
of Canada, we're also climate and geography. We're more like embedded on both sides of us with the U.S. Our next closest bigger city would be London, which is just a little over two hours away. And the same is true for Sault Ste. Marie. So a border town and uh, separated from their next closest city, three hours away, Sudbury, right? And looking after a huge region. When we think of small, you know, Windsor is actually not that small because our actual population and from a health perspective, it's almost 600,000 people that are looked after health-wise in this region. And so the geography that it has to cover and the number of different types of people and demographics. But I think it's almost like a microcosm of when I think of the GTA, where we're at a little bit of an advantage because we we can actually communicate with all of the, our partners that we need to form something that can support this very vast population and very vast demographics and think about how can we do that? And that's that's sort of what we've done with the Health Institute. How can we come together with our health care partners, the hospitals, the university, the college, public health? Now we're all working together. We're able to set this up in a way that I think is quite special, but could be ruled out in a larger format. One of the many things you do is head up the Porter Lab at the University of Windsor, which I believe has a team of around 30 people. And I would appreciate you giving us an overview about the work you do there. As a prof leading up my research program, I, in addition to the things I do at the university, like teaching and, and service and whatnot, I apply for grants. My team and I come up with ideas that, for us, all of our ideas are focused on cancer primarily, and apply for grant funding, and then hire teams of scientists to work on that problem. And then, you know, we do the bench work and the research, then we write up into papers and put out, but also... I'm what I would consider a translational research lab in that we work with our healthcare partners. As part of our team, we have some amazing clinician partners where this is kind of a back and forth, right? They tell us these are the most pressing health problems that are affecting my patients. And then as we're going forward with the science, we think about, you know, what do we need to do to get that science into the clinics? And we work with multidisciplinary partners, so chemists, um, I've got some great chemistry partners, materials, chemistry, engineering. So working on, you know, what do we need to do to move our science into a way that can influence patients and actually move us forward clinically? It sounds like running a lab is kind of like running a small business. It's exactly like running a small business. This is where a lot of scientists, we get thrown into running a lab uh, with zero business skills or background. It's exactly running a business. I mean, you're in charge of a team of people. Um, you have a hierarchy, you know, you've got people at all different levels. You got to mentor those people, support them through their career path, and then get a product out and balance the budget and get in the revenues. Depending on the time of day, you're a psychologist, a social worker, an advocate, a teacher, a shoulder to cry on, the whole gamut. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. I read that you've said Research is not just about answering the unknown. It's also about predicting strategically where we need to go. I'd appreciate you telling us what you mean by that. I think it's got to be a balance of both. And, you know, this is where in science we would do a lot of arguing because, you know, I think you need both where scientists should be allowed to just go into a lab and explore. And at some level, that is so critical in keeping innovation moving forward. Things like everybody's heard of CRISPR-Cas now, you know, how we genome edit. That wouldn't have been discovered if not for the scientists that were just exploring how different machinery is working. 
I think within a different types of organisms even, we need science to be at one point unrestricted where you can explore. But from a science perspective, we also have to keep an eye on where the application is going and questions that we're asking because we want our science to be moving out so that it's actually making an impact. And in part, that's because what influences the funding for science is government and the people that we serve. And so it's important that we can say, these are the questions that we're going after and predicting in the future. I think it's a combination of the two, you know, and, and as scientists, we go back and forth and arguing about this, but, but I believe that the balance is just so important. And for me, I try to do that. I try to keep an eye on where we need to go in the future and how exactly I'm pushing my science out so that it's actually impacting lives. What is the favorite part of your job? I don't think I have one favorite thing. I think it's that I get to do so many different things all the time and it's always challenging you. You mentioned the business part of things and overseeing a team. I love being a part of working with people that are the majority of every single person is smarter and uh, more talented than I am. And for me, you know, my students, some of them just blow your mind, like getting to work with these students and see what they get to achieve. That's such a privilege to be able to be a part of. To me, it's not even a job. I'm really lucky that I get to be in this position. I wouldn't say it's without its challenges and without its work, of course, the benefits far away, the negative parts. What is your biggest challenge? Well, the biggest challenge, I think, is funding for science. When COVID hit and vaccines came on the scene so quickly and science just mobilized, you know, I, I thought, oh my God, this is science's biggest moment. And now people are going to get it. <laughs> but then I think it actually worked against us in so many ways in that there's just such public distrust of science and government. In part, it's communication. And I think we've always said it, that communication is such a big piece of science and in fact, I teach this class about science communication, and that goes back to Mrs. Ar Arcangeletti back in fourth grade. Scientists have to be good communicators. We have to keep working on it, even if it's not comfortable for us, because telling our story is huge. So I've almost come full circle here. If you can't tell your story, that's when the public stops understanding about the value of science. I think that we have to keep pushing on this. Science is the foundation of, of what we understand of, of the world. It's about uh, creating all of those opportunities for innovation, supporting the tomorrow that we will all want to see. But we're not going to get there without public support. We're not going to get there without government support. And I think people lose sight of the importance of that connection. I'm so glad that people like you who are telling our story and uh, helping to get it out there. Thank you for the kind words. I really appreciate it. I might spoil what you just said for some of our listeners, because one of my favorite personalities is Ricky Gervais. And he came up with something a while ago that I thought was just brilliant, which is your opinion does not change my facts, which lends towards your comment that communication is critical to science. I have to ask, how frustrating is it when you hear people say the Ontario Life Sciences corridors between Hamilton and Toronto? Oh, gosh, yeah. To me, that it's like people who are looking out to the future. I think that if you think that we're just setting up this small little corridor, look at how overpopulated, over even the market of people and the cost of housing in, in that area is just astronomical. And so I think people have to think beyond that corridor or beyond the GTA. 
and they have to start looking out at what all of Ontario has to offer. I'll say that goes beyond just Windsor, but I think Windsor has gold mine. But I look to our partners at the north. I have my clinical colleague, Dr. Carolyn Ham. She always cites so much interesting work, but over 60% of people in our province are treated outside of those major centers. Yet, if we're pouring all of our time into those major centers, the majority of people in our population are not getting access to that. There was a study done several years ago that showed that people treated at academic centers, so hospitals doing research, for example, live longer. That's not just the people that are being involved in clinical trials, et cetera. That's everybody treated at that center. Your overall chance of getting clinical good outcomes is higher. So that says to me, we cannot just have certain hospitals, certain places that have access everywhere in Ontario, everywhere in Canada. Our populations deserve access to the best. And so I'm going to keep beating that drum. Grateful for the people that outside of the GTA, I'm not going to argue that the GTA is our center point in Ontario and do so many great things. You can consider them the engine. And I would argue we're not going to go far without the tires. We need to start thinking beyond just the GTA, that's for sure. Preaching the choir on that one. And that's a great segue into talking about the WeSpark Health Institute. You're the executive director, and it was officially launched in March 2020. But I understand the idea for the Institute was born in 2009 when a number of stakeholders from within Windsor-Essex got together to discuss expanding the, the research capacity in the region. I would appreciate you telling us about what the Institute is all about, because I think the story behind how it was created is, is really interesting. The Institute is really a partnership. The Institute's about elevating health research in Windsor-Essex. That's our goal. But it's a partnership of our region, a formal partnership between the University of Windsor, St. Clair College, Windsor Regional Hospital, Hotel de Grace Healthcare, and now Erie Shores Healthcare out in Leamington. We're continuing to grow. We now have an informal partnership with public health starting to grow on that piece. It's really about healthcare and getting better outcomes in health. Start at research. Research is what moves us forward. Research is innovation. And to elevate that piece, for us, it's about bringing together all of the critical mass in our region and working together. Many places sort of start in pillars, which often starts at the university and you develop this critical mass. And then, you know, maybe you have pillars starting to work together. I think for us, it started in a very different way. And it started with all of the different stakeholders across the region coming together and saying, let's work together to make a research agenda that works for our region. That's how we started. We formally launched just as COVID was shutting the doors of the hospital. And again, that was our opportunity to show them what research could do. And we did that right out of the gates, brought together funding, managed to fund, I think it was 15 research grants that allowed us to develop innovations to support COVID outcomes in our region. Some might know our region suffered among the most in Ontario. We were actually the last to be able to come out of COVID restrictions because of our population demographics, our migrant worker populations, things like this that really suffered because of COVID. So we were able to bring together funding to say, okay, you know what, like we need to mobilize projects to help support all of these different challenges. And that's what, that's what research is, quickly mobilizing people around a challenge and saying, let's find a solution. We were able to do that in many different areas. It's been a long journey to form the Institute, but I think the momentum that we've been able to get because of the partnerships, because of the region. 
It sounds like WeSpark Health Institute in Windsor might do for Windsor-Essex what Communitech did for Waterloo Region over the last 20-some years since it was founded. And wouldn't it be cool if that were the case? You have said that you're always questioning yourself. Why do you think that is? I think I'm a researcher, so researchers are supposed to ask lots of questions. And I don't know, it could be a, a female thing as well. I think a lot of people suffer a lot from self-doubt. I think questioning yourself is something that many people do. But I think for me, I think sometimes I suffer with getting the confidence in my ideas. And there I really rely a lot on my network and support structures. They're constantly my cheerleaders, sort of my right-hand person, my assistant, Karen Metcalf, my lab, my research associates there. We're kind of a back and forth. Definitely, I don't do anything as a solo. I've got my people around me, and we truly are a team. Every time I question myself, I bounce those questions off of my team, and I question them. They question themselves. You know, it goes back and forth. But that's kind of how we move forward. It's worked so far. I don't know if it's a perfect model. I think we're showing success, so that's a good thing. Humble leadership is a wonderful thing to have. When in your career did you feel or, or realize that you were on the right path? God, I don't know if I ever had that complete realization. <laughs> it goes back and forth as you're developing something. Sometimes we've been like two steps forward, one step back. But again, I think it is the reassurance of the people around me that's very, very multifaceted. It even goes to some of the patients here. We've got this great group here called the Cancer Collaborative Fund. They're actually going to be doing this play for a cure. I encourage everybody to look it up online if you're listening. This is driven by this guy, Jeff Casey, who's a cancer survivor. When I get together with people like that, and they're telling us that the growth of research, the growth of what we're doing here in the region is giving them hope. There's actually this guy, he was probably the first cancer researcher in Windsor-Essex, Michael Dufresne, and he's got this saying that I think we've made into t-shirts, we've got it on signs, but it says, without research, hope is just a word. To me, I think that's our motto. Every time I listen to them and they give me reassurance that, yes, what we're doing is bringing the patient's hope, that it's helping to move us forward here locally. That gives me little by little more and more confidence that what we're doing is working, that we're moving in the right direction. And I think it's always good to have a good dose of reality if you're swaying in any one direction to always continue to elevate your game and always happy to listen to criticism because I want to make sure that we're always moving um, in the right way. One way, for example, our college partners are really great at saying that we're not doing enough with regards to industry and innovation, and I agree. So I think that that's been something with the life science sector, your audience on the line, um, that I think we're really keen to do. I think our college partners do a great job of making those connections. The university, we've got a lot of great people that are also working in that area. I'm always happy to listen to, hey, you know, you need to work harder in this area and let's do it. And happy to bring new people to the table as well to make us stronger. You mentioned listening to criticism. I'm wondering what the biggest obstacle you've had and what you learned from it and how you overcame it. In research, your obstacles are usually funding-based. <laughs> you get lots of failures with regards to grant applications and paths. For me, it's just been sheer stubbornness of not giving up. I think it's always been that way and that I think I'd send out a variety of applications or ideas. Maybe I'm batting about one in 10 will succeed. If you were in sales, that would be a good ratio. I'm probably actually overestimating, but I think for me, it's probably the same with a lot of your business people that are on the line. It's no different in research and that you've got to just 
keep putting your line in the water and testing different waters and throwing different things at the wall and what sticks, figure out why it's stuck. And for me, I analyze that to all depths and then keep moving forward and being stubborn. That's the biggest thing. And I think also it's surrounding yourself with good people. I've got the best team and I'm super lucky in that regard. You also come across people who are negative and are trying to drag you down. And I think we all come across those people and it's hard sometimes not to let those people get you down. Sometimes they bring a, a thing that you want to grab on and think, okay, what are the lessons I need to take from this? And then move forward and not let it drag you down. I've had to do that numerous times. Just don't let those people deter you. We spoke earlier about good advice that you've received. It sounds like that might be advice you would give to people that might be listening. Is there something you might add on to that for young listeners who are just graduating, starting their career? Women in particular, is there anything that you could add to that comment? You want to surround yourself with people that are supportive. You really rely on those people, but you want to pick those people very carefully and make sure that they are your cheerleaders, that they are your champions, and be prepared to walk away from the people that are not. That's great advice. 100% agree with what you've just said. What is it you're most proud of? I think I've got a lot to be proud of. I'm proud of from many levels, but my family, for how they've just been resilient throughout my career and helped to support me, and my lab and my WeSpark team. Proud of how they've pivoted, rallied around this, and given just everything to it. And our team involves hospital partners and all of our fundraising partners. I think we truly are a team here. It's been a fun journey, honestly. Sounds like a great place to be. I have one final question. What's the next great big idea on your horizon? The next great big idea for our region and for me, I think, is about taking healthcare to the next level here in Windsor-Essex. We're working on some super exciting projects. One is with regards to nanoparticles and being able to use nanoparticles and different types of technologies to treat cancers. I think that we're going to be able to advance that here, bringing together material science and physics here in a unique way. I think that team approach to cancer research is a big one. It involves patients and community. It's a bit of a lofty idea, but it really is about the intersection of bringing people like me, scientists, and our ideas together more carefully with community and healthcare and even government. I think it is about figuring out that balance. And I believe that's where a lot of things have gone wrong in the past. It's the communication network that we need to form. Maybe I haven't worded that properly, but I think my great big idea would be that we can't be an island with regards to cancer research and where we need to be. It has to really be about forming big teams and thinking about regions that are perhaps underserved, bringing together the people that really have a lot to gain. I think the people that saw your application 20 years ago did a brilliant thing hiring you. There's an amazing amount of stuff going on in Windsor, which is world-class. And I hope that this podcast and your words help people look at what's going on there. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure meeting you as well. That was Dr. Lisa Porter, Distinguished Professor and Leader of the Porter Lab at the University of Windsor and Executive Director of the Weisbark Health Institute in Windsor. You can learn more about Lisa and her team at porterlab.com 
And you can find out more about WeSpark at WeSparkHealth.com. This week's episode was researched and edited by Tisha Prasad, and you can follow us on social at Lab Occupier. If you'd like to get in touch with me, I can be reached at jwilson at leonard, that's L-E-N-N-A-R-D dot com. We hope you like what we're doing and we'll appreciate you promoting us online with the hashtags NGBI and NGBIdeas. Thanks so much for listening.